Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Boy, it's, uh, it's good to be with you today. We are steamrolling through our series to finish this year. We're trying to finish this year strong with some focus. And the goal is not to bring this year to a close, but to launch us further and further into mission into next year. And so I see this not as an exit ramp of 2017, but an on-ramp to 2018. That's what we're doing right now. We're in part number five on the um, sermon series called Made for Mission. And this point is this, that every human being is designed by God intricately to live a life of purpose, to live a life of meaning, to want something that transcends just temporal things, to have a mission. You see, created things are created for a reason. That's why we make things. And so you and I, if we are created beings, we have a creator that had a reason to make you and a reason to make me. And we've got to discover what that mission is. And originally we saw that all creation whether it's trees or grass or flowers or people, were designed by their creator to reflect his beauty and his glory throughout the world. We as humans were designed to do that. That's what the Bible means when it says you are supposed to bring glory to God. It means that you're supposed to declare that being like him is exactly how life was supposed to be lived. But we as humans have failed at that. We don't always do that. And the Bible calls, when we don't always do that, bringing glory to God, the Bible calls that sin. And we have fallen into sin. Our nature has been harmed by sin, and we have become sinners. And once redeemed in Jesus Christ, those of us who have become believers now have not just the generic mission to bring glory to God, but a very particular mission for believers in Jesus Christ. And this is not a suggestion This is not a, if you have some time, maybe you ought to think about doing this. This is a mandate from our Lord to his disciples to therefore go and make other people into disciples. Or you might put it this way. I want you to go, Jesus might say, and restore people to their original design, which is to be in fellowship with God. That's what it means to make disciples. And if you are a believer here today, you have that commission or that mission placed upon your life. And this mission is something that's been received to to us from God. It's something that is explicitly clear. There's no confusion about what's behind this. We need to go teach people and train them to become like Jesus. This mission is urgent. It's serious. The stakes are high. Eternity is in the balance. And it's costly. Jesus knows this. He said, you need to count the cost before you come and follow me. That to follow Jesus Christ is discipleship, is a disciple-making mission, and that will come with cost. You have to pay that cost, but it comes with great reward. Now, this is important. This is vital. And this is not important in just some sort of theoretical way, like uh, we're talking about some Bible and some book and some theology, and this is vital that you understand something. This is important in a very, very practical way. You see, the future of not just the church generically, but the future of the church in Pickerington, Ohio, is dependent upon this mission 
being held and being lived. That if my children grow up and just so happen to, maybe if they find a spouse, if they don't, if they remain single, that's fine. If they grow up and they find work and they find home in this community, in 15 and 20 and 30 years, that if there is a church for them to be a part of in this place, it is dependent or contingent upon the very people in this room right now living the mission today of making disciples for there to be a vibrant church tomorrow. That if we don't take this responsibility and carry this burden and understand the obligation and responsibility we have to people that are coming after us, that that is our real legacy, what we leave behind. It is up to us for us to live this mission today because a church that does not evangelize is a church that will fossilize. It will grow cold and it will die. That means that you and I must do this. Yes, the very people in this room right now must do this. There's no other option, no plan B. The Bible does not speak of just some saved Christian. It speaks of saved Christians who are sent on mission. And so our next step in this series right now, part number five, is intended to move us, to move us from thinking about this mission to actually doing it. Now, in between that step of thinking about this mission in the safe confines of the church gathering today and moving into the doing of this mission in the world is a great amount of tension, fear, awkwardness, insecurity. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it, to think about going out to people who might not be believers in Jesus Christ and introducing them to Jesus or going out to people who maybe were Christians but have left and trying to draw them back. Or it even becomes uncomfortable for fellow believers to meet outside of this place and infuse into their time together a spiritual aspect of prayer and study and confession and encouragement. That's not always natural for us. In fact, the natural person is hostile towards God, so you and I have to make a commitment to discipleship, a commitment to this mission. And so for us to do this right, we've got to think right about it. And so our sermon today is called Mindset for Mission. We've got to have the right mindset because when our mind is right, we will do this. We've got to think right about the opportunity to make disciples. Now, this passage that Ken read for us in um, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, is one of those passages that when you read it and then you work your way backwards, it begins to make sense. So, for instance, Jesus is doing something in verse 35, and then he's thinking something in verse 36, and then he's telling something in verses 37 and 38. And so for our purposes today, we're going to work backwards. We're going to look at what he said and then what he thought, and then what he did, so we can become people like him that emulate him. So the first thing we're going to start with is the perspective of the opportunity. What is your perspective right now of people wanting to become a Christian? What do you think about that right now? What do you think about people wanting to become, go from non-Christian to Christian right now? What's your outlook? What's your optimism? What's your hope in that thought right now? Pretty bleak? Think it's pretty thin? Probably not much of an opportunity? Really, right now, pause and just reflect. I'm going to give you a few seconds. Think. What do you believe about the opportunity 
for somebody to become a Christian who's not a Christian right now, do you have hope that people want to become Christians? Do you have conviction that there are people right now that are not Christians, that are groping and seeking for something in this life, that are looking for an opportunity to talk to you who knows Jesus Christ and can become a Christian? You see, Jesus has a perspective about this idea of mission, this idea of evangelism, that you and I have got to get, the perspective. And the first one is this. If you look down in verse 37, Jesus says, perspective number one is this. There are disciples who are available, but there are disciple makers who are limited. Or maybe you could say it this way. The only barrier to disciples being made is the availability of laborers, not the opportunity for harvest. Do you see the conviction in Jesus' voice in verse 37? The harvest, maybe, might be, hopefully. He has no question about it, does he? He has no um, wondering about it. He's not uncertain about this. He says the harvest is plentiful. What's the only problem? Laborers. The only barrier to disciples being made in December of 2017 is the availability of laborers, not the opportunity for harvest. What's your perspective on disciple making right now? Do you really believe that? This is the gut check moment of Christianity. Do you believe this? Do you actually believe that disciples can be made? That Christians can be won? That lost people are actually hungering for Jesus Christ? Or if we just believe the over and over voice of negativity in our culture that tells us just to give up and quit. It's hopeless. There's never been a worse time in history. There actually has been. Okay? Number two. Perspective number two is this. That the harvest belongs to God. Look in verse 38. He says it twice. He says to pray earnestly that God will send laborers into His Harvest. His. Now here's why this matters. Because souls that are currently right now not connected to God through Jesus Christ, that are not Christians, but might want to become Christians, belong to God. All souls are His. They're all His. They're not yours. They're not mine. And His souls, once they're converted to Him, become like Him. But souls, all the souls are His. This harvest is His. It's not yours. And so this reduces the pressure that we feel to evangelize. The fear we have that we're going to fail. Oftentimes we reach, we see people, we see opportunities, whether it's in the coffee shop we stop by, or the coworker that we're next to, or the neighbor that we have, and we have that awkwardness and that fear that if I get into a Bible study or a conversation with them, I might fail God. And He tells them, no, no, it's not your harvest. It's my harvest. So that reduces the pressure, the fear that we have to fail. It also reduces the frustration that when you present the gospel to somebody, you share the message that you're a Christian and you'd like to help somebody learn about Jesus. And they say, not my thing, man. I'm not into it. Whose harvest is it? It's not yours. And so that should reduce the frustration. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected him. And the fact that it's his harvest doesn't just reduce the pressure and reduce the frustration it also eliminates, eliminates the self-righteous pride we feel when people are converted. That they're not ours. I have never in my life baptized a person 
from start to finish that was completely dependent upon my interaction with that human. I can promise you, I've baptized people over the last 15 years, multiple times, a lot of people, and I've never, from start to finish, taught somebody, had them in my home for dinner, went out to coffee with them, called them, checked on them, sent a card to them, taught them some more, and then baptized them without another soul being involved. This is not my harvest, it's his harvest. It's not your harvest, it's his harvest. And let that reduce the pressure that you have that you're going to fail. It's his. Let it reduce the frustration you have when it doesn't work. It's his, not yours. And obviously, the pride. We are just servants and laborers in his field. Leave the harvest to him. The third perspective Jesus had was this. The work begins with prayer. He's, verse 38, he says that we ought to pray earnestly. And that phrase is trying to invoke in you a sort of um, emotion. It's trying to elicit in you this understanding of praying in a way that you plead for something when you are desperately in need. Like imagine being as thirsty as possible and somebody has an ice cold bottle of water and you're just there and you're begging for that. Or maybe your life is on the line and there's a trouble that you're facing and you're begging for help. When he says pray earnestly, He's saying that you and I ought to want so desperately for souls to come to Jesus that we go to God first and we beg him to send laborers into the field. We cry over it. We weep over it. We yearn and we hurt for the neighbors that are next to us and the coworkers we have and the students that are in our school with us who don't know Jesus that are going down a route of their life that are just wrecking things and we actually hurt for them, and we beg God, please, please do something in the life of my neighbor, my friend, my coworker, my family member. Do something in their life to help them. You see, our perspective has got to get right about this opportunity for us to become disciple makers, but it's not just our perspective. It's also our perception, our view. You see, the word perception means the ability to see combined with becoming aware. So you, when you perceive things, it's not just visual sight, although that can be involved. Perception is also becoming aware of something, noticing something, seeing something that you didn't see before. You see, Jesus in his life, if you go back and just trace the Gospels, he wasn't just this walking evangelism magnet. You know, you know what I mean? Like walk into a town and people would just attract to him and they'd fall before him and say, please, Jesus, convert me. I'm dying to be converted today. That's not how it worked for him. You see, Jesus was surrounded constantly by antagonists who doubted him and thought he was of the devil. He was surrounded by opportunists who saw him as the gateway to the kingdom of Israel now being restored physically, and they thought they would latch on to him and maybe they'd become rich. That's what happened to Judas. You see, Jesus was surrounded by all kinds of people who didn't want to be his disciple all the time. But his perception of those people was unique. How do you view sinners? How do you view people who are not Christians right now? When you look at them, when you interact with them, how do you think about them? Let me tell you two things about Jesus, his perception. The first thing is, his perception gave him a kind of vision, not just to see people, but to see needs. Look in verse 36. The first thing it says in verse 36 is that Jesus saw the crowd. He could see the crowd. He wasn't oblivious to the crowd. He wasn't ignoring the crowd. 
He looked and he could see the people. But when he saw the crowd, he saw something unique. He saw something different. He saw them, as he says there at the end of verse 36, as a sort of helpless and harassed kind of people. He saw them as, that word harassed is the same kind of word that we would use in 2017 for the word bullied or picked on. You know, bullying has become something that we're very keenly aware of in our schools and our communities with young people today. It's, it, it's, it's something that we're pretty sensitive to now, especially in our schools. And there's a lot of people standing up to the idea of bullying, and that's beautiful, and that's right, because bullying is a horrible thing. Now imagine watching a video right now of a young child being bullied. What, what sort of things elicit in you, in your emotions, when you see that? How do you feel when you see a young child being picked on by bigger or older kids? Do you feel angry? Do you feel frustrated? Do you want to step in? Especially when you're watching a video, right, and you see it, and you just, like, you know you can't do anything, you want to stop it. It hurts you for that child, right, that's being picked on. Jesus says, when I see the people, I see them as harassed and helpless. He says, like a sheep without any shepherd to help them or guide them or protect them. That's what the shepherd provided, guidance and protection, feeding and tending. Jesus saw people that way. He cared for them that way. And this was not easy for him. This had to be hard. Remember who Jesus was surrounded with. He wasn't surrounded by a bunch of timid sheep who were just walking around saying, somebody please be my shepherd. He was surrounded by vile people, by harsh people, by rude and mean and distant and cold people. He was surrounded by people who were smug and arrogant. And when he looked at them, he didn't just see their flaws, he saw their needs. He hurt for them. One time he was standing over the city of Jerusalem, the people who rejected him, who called him a person of the devil, that got his power from evil. And he looked over Jerusalem and he says that he was weeping for them. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wing like a mother hen does her little chicks, but you just won't let me. He was crying for them. What's your perception of this opportunity to make disciples? What do you think about with people who aren't Christians. You see, Jesus, when he looked at people, could see their deepest needs. When he saw people in rage, he saw rage that was probably born out of abandonment and fear. When he saw obnoxiousness, maybe out of little children or his friends or his neighbors, he saw obnoxiousness that was born out of insecurity and saw the need. He saw greed that was born out of fear. He saw lust that was born out of inner emptiness. And so when he saw the sins that vex us, that bother us, that frustrate us, he looked past the actions and into the need. How do you view people who are in sin right now? As a bother to your way or as a person in need? His perception gave him vision not to see people, not just to see people, but to see needs. And this vision gave him compassion to hurt for people and not be hurt by people. You see, this vision to see people in their needs allowed Jesus to hurt for them and not be hurt by them. Look again in verse 36. It says he saw the crowd and he had compassion. He had compassion. Yes, the very people that mocked him and ridiculed him, the very people that would be angry with him and try to kill him, the very people that eventually did lie about him and have him killed. He looked at him and said, I feel compassion for you. You see, Jesus knew that sin was a heart condition long before it ever becomes an action. 
And so when he saw actions of sin, he wasn't just frustrated with people's actions. He was concerned about their heart condition. He was able to see all sinners with compassion, even the ones who were angry and attacked him. He was able to do that. And you and I need to have a kind of perception of those outside of Jesus Christ that gives us vision to see needs and compassion to hurt for people. We need to see underneath the actions the real needs. We need to see beyond the cries for help that are in the words there. We need to see what people need and be ready to respond. But it's not just our perspective of the opportunity or our perception. We also do need to be prepared. Now, if you go back to verse 35, so remember we're working backwards. What Jesus taught us, the perspective of evangelism, and then we saw what Jesus thought, his perception. Now we've got to be prepared to take some action. In verse 35, Jesus shows us how he was prepared and how we can be prepared. And there's two key things that happen here. Two key, I would call them, beliefs that Jesus operated out of. And the first one is this, that the opportunity for evangelism is in every place. In verse 35, it says that Jesus went to the cities and the villages, both. You see, everywhere Jesus went, all places, there was an opportunity for evangelism. He didn't see some places as an opportunity and other places as not an opportunity. Every place he went, he was thinking about his mission. Every place. And so every place you go, when you are at home, there's mission field if you live with people. When you stop by and get coffee on the way to work, there's a mission opportunity there. The people that are behind the counter. When you're at work, the people you work with, there's mission opportunity. When you're at school, the people you eat lunch with, there's mission opportunity. Everywhere you go, there's mission opportunity. The obvious places like the cities where there are lots of people, but also the obscure places like the villages and every place in between. Every place you go, a disciple can be made. But the second thing is this, that this opportunity is for all people. I'm sorry, I'm all behind now. You got to tell me when I do this wrong. The second belief is this, the opportunity is for all people. It's for the religious people in the synagogue. It's for the peasant that's laying in the village. And it's for the heathen on the road between the city and the village. Every person could become a Christian. But how are we going to do this? Jesus does three things here in this passage that show you some actions he takes. And I want you to pay very close attention to what Jesus does in verse 35 that's going to give you a basis for how you can make disciples. The first one is this, Jesus gains trust and respect. How does he do this? It says that he taught in their synagogues. Now, you might think that Jesus was sort of, uh, when he taught in his synagogues, he walked in and just sort of shook the rug and got them all stirred up and said, hey, I'm the Savior, Uh, you need to just become a Christian, follow me, this is all going to work out fine. That's not what he did. Jesus had the pedigree and the reputation to be handed the opportunity to teach Jewish people the Jewish scriptures in their Jewish synagogue. Here's what this means. Jesus taught in their place. He earned their respect. He gained their trust. You see, they respected Jesus enough to let him teach their own doctrines in their own place. This is important. How does this work for you? You and I, where we live, where we work, where we um, congregate with our people, have to become people that gain trust and respect. 
That means that we show up to work and we're consistent. That means that we become good at our jobs and try to become helpful. That means we become people in our classrooms that help the teacher maintain behavior, not become problems. Right, guys? Right, Mr. Schooley? You need people helping you in classroom, right? That means where we are, we become the people that when they see us, we're trusted and respected. That's important. Because when you're trusted and when you're respected, we can become people that add value to the places you are. In your neighborhood, are you adding value? In your workplace, are you adding value? In your school, in your community, are you adding value? When you become that kind of person, the second thing happens. You proclaim good news. It says that Jesus taught in their synagogues, but then proclaimed the gospel. You see, people love good news, especially in the midst of bad news, right? We, we love to hear good news. But Jesus did something spe specific. He earned their trust and respect by teaching them, where they looked at him and said, this man knows the scripture. And then he introduced to that crowd good news. You see, when you earn people's trust and respect in your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your schools, when people trust you and respect you, you will be the person they come to when they are dealing with bad news. And you've got to be prayerfully waiting for that opportunity. There will be times in your life when people have bad news going on. A health condition, a relationship breaking down, financial trouble, something is going to be going wrong in their life. And when they bring that bad news, they've got to find some place to put it. And when they look in their world, who's the person they trust? Who's the person they respect? And they bring that. And you've got to be ready to have good news that speaks into their bad news. Loss of a loved one. There's someone's love will never leave us. Health that's deteriorating. There's a kind of inner spiritual health that you can never lose. Do you see what I'm getting after? You've got to be ready for good news that invades bad news when people are willing to share it with those they trust. And the last thing is this. Jesus alleviated suffering. You notice that he healed diseases. He healed those that were suffering. We have to back up our preaching with our practice. We can't just be street corner preachers yelling about Jesus and have no actions to back it up. You see, when you receive grace, that becomes automatically you become a person that should give grace. Disciples of Jesus Christ are converted and made by meals being cooked and children being watched and rides being given, and conversations being had. That's how disciples are made. And if we're not people who are alleviating suffering, we will not be people whose voice can speak into somebody's life to teach them about Jesus. This will demand availability of your time, your emotional energy, and your money. Now take just a minute right now and do an inventory. Do you have any of those three resources right now? Right now, time, energy, and money. Do you have any of those resources that have any availability for somebody right now who's not a Christian? That if you don't have one of those resources, remember, it doesn't just have to be money automatically. Peter and John didn't have money, but they offered the man what they could in Acts chapter 3. But time, energy, and money, do you have any extra of any of those three. And if you don't, Jesus is pressing on you now to make some changes in your life. Could be with your schedule. Could be with your budget. It could be with what you give your time to, your energy and your emotions. 
But you've got to make yourself available if you're going to become a disciple maker. Gain respect and trust, proclaim good news, and alleviate suffering. This pattern makes sense because we see it exactly in Jesus Christ, the man who was the perfect model, who took suffering that belonged to us and brought it on himself to alleviate us of the suffering we deserved, who proclaimed his good news not just with what he said but what he did, when upon taking our suffering he hung on the cross to the very point in which he would give, us a, give his life for us and declared to us the greatest news possible that sinners can be saved, that we can be reconciled to God, that guilt can be forgiven and shame can be washed away and reconciliation and joy and peace can be found. He proclaimed that when he died for us and rose again. And he has certainly gained our trust and our respect, not just by what he said, but what he's done. And if that guy, that Jesus, you haven't really connected to yet, you don't trust him, his good news hasn't affected your life, or even this, what suffering are you still carrying right now that Jesus was supposed to carry to the cross? Is it guilt? Have you let yourself be forgiven? Is it shame? Are you frustrated with who you are? Is it something else? Is it a physical ailment? Is it a mental strain? Is it a worry, an anxiety, a fear? It was Peter who told us that he bore our burdens on the cross. And the question is this, are you still holding on to your burdens? Because if you are, you'll not be able to minister to people. You'll still need ministering too. What burdens, what guilt, what frustrations do you need to give to Jesus so you can be free to live the mission you were created for? If you need help, that's what we're here for. Let's stand and sing. You can come forward. All to Jesus I surrender, all I am I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily.
Let's sing just the first verse of number 658. 658. There is much to do, there's work on every hand. Hark the cry for help comes ringing through the land. Jesus calls for reapers. I must active be, oh, what will thou, O Master, here am I, send me, here am I, Lord, send me. Good morning, church. We are uh, so glad that you have come to be with us this morning. We appreciate your attendance so much. If you are visiting with us, we want you to know that you are truly an honored guest and that we really, really are glad you're here. Please, uh, if you get a chance, uh, talk to somebody and let them know who you are. Uh, if you would like to take one of these cards and text welcome to this number, these are on the seat backs in front of you. Uh, that gives us a chance to let you know who you are and get connected with you in that fashion. If you did not get a bulletin, please do so. There are many things in there that you need to be made aware of, so make sure you get one of those. I have uh, a few cards this morning that I will read as soon as I get them open. 